Um, for the last few weeks, we've been kind of going through what does it mean to be contemplative? What is this contemplative way? And the reason we're doing this is because the contemplative way is such a foundation here at The Effect. You know, we've been kind of have, going through the series of talking about what, the, what is The Effect is about? What is the method in our madness? And, you know, besides obviously going for the effect, an actual effect on the way that we live and love and relate and the choices that we make because of our faith informing us, this idea of the contemplative way is what brings us into the deeper connection with our Father so that we're not just following rules, not just following morals or ethics or, or church ritual or practice, but actually from the inside out, becoming transformed in a way that our behavior still looks like law, still looks like morals and ethics, but internally this t- corner has been turned completely so that it's no longer restrictive, but it's liberating to just live out what it is we truly and deeply value, what we take pleasure in, and how do we get there? You know, this is what the contemplative way is all about. And you know, this is such a hard concept to get across. That's why I've been spending a few Sundays on it, because especially for us here in the West, it is so difficult to even imagine stepping aside from all that noise in our head, stepping aside from that voice in our head, in some way separating, distancing, detaching ourselves from that voice in our head and all those thoughts and all that activity. We as a people, especially over the last 500 years, since the Enlightenment and the Reformation and the colonial period and all that historically, we have become much more and more a people identified with our accomplishments, with the activity of life, and that voice that is constantly talking to us in our heads. We think that's who we are. We can no longer separate ourselves from that. And because of that, because we're identified there, the thing that we cling on to and the control that we're trying to hold on to is what's keeping us from this deeper experience with God. Because the deeper experience with God, when we really are face-to-face with God, we understand how out of control we really are, how dependent and vulnerable we really are. But that voice in our head and our Western culture is reemphasizing and always reinforcing the idea that we're supposed to be in control. We're supposed to be these fiercely independent people. You know, We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and we just make our way through life. And that really works for some things but not for spirituality. And obviously there has to be a balance. But this contemplative way is the way of stepping aside from all of that stuff in our heads, all those attachments, all those identification points. When Jesus told the rich young man to sell everything that he had and follow him, he was inviting him to a contemplative way of life, to let go not just physical riches, that wasn't the point, that he was clinging to his physical riches, that was the point. That was the voice in his head telling him who he was, telling him how he could still control all the scary things in life. To let go of that is a contemplative way. So what I thought I'd do this morning is throw another word at you, a word you probably haven't heard before. How many have heard the word apophatic? Got a couple of you, yeah? Apophatic. comes from two Greek words, you know? Apo meaning to deny, A-P-O, and phatic comes from phemi, which is the word that the Greeks used to say to say something or to speak something. So it's to 
it's a denial, but it's a denial to speak, in our, in our sense, a denial to even think. It is, in, it is in Latin called the negativa, via negativa, which is the negative way, the way of letting go, of clearing out. Now, as soon as you say via negativa, negative way, already we've got a problem, right? It just doesn't sound. How can a negative way be good? Are we supposed to be focused on the positive? Now, apophatic stands in contrast to cataphatic, another Greek word. Kata, meaning to descend, and again, Femi, meaning to speak. And the idea with cataphatic is to bring God down into our minds so that we may speak of him. In other words, to actually understand him. So there is very famous cataphatic prayer. We engage in more cataphatic prayer. Cataphatic prayer is prayer of content. It uses words, it uses ideas, it uses symbols, it uses images to try to get a concept of God, to try to get a concept of what it is that we are doing, what our relationship is all about. Now that type of prayer is familiar to us because we're always talking anyway, right? And so when we do corporate prayer, of course we talk, but we need to because it's corporate prayer. When you are praying on your own, you know, especially as a Catholic, we had recited prayers that we needed to say, Our Father, Hail Mary, Glory Be. But there are prayers that we're just extemporizing in our minds, either verbally or just mentally. But it's always a stream of words. It's always using content to try to get us in touch with God. The apophatic way is to remove all the content. Take it all away. Because here's the idea. Anything that we do to attach a symbol to a a word, a concept, an image to God, constrains God. Now God is included only within that image that we have mentally. But if we're really going to experience all that God is, then we have to leave him unconstrained. We have to let go of all those images, all those thoughts. You know, I came out of childhood in the Catholic Church imagining God as the white-bearded, robed guy way up high on the throne. You know, that was my image of God as a child. It took me 30 years to let go of that image. You know, they, those images get in there and they get stuck. And we find ourselves thinking of God. We think of him as him, as male, as, as her, as female, I suppose. We think of him in this way or that way, wrathful, having emotions. There's so many different ways that we can think about God and imagine God. Even if you really want to get technical about it, when you say God is love, well, then your idea of love becomes a constraint to who God is. But if we can let all that go in the moment, then apophatic prayer, contemplative prayer, allows us simply to be. And spirit to spirit, we connect with whatever is there in the moment. Jesus' admonition to us not to judge is another call away from how we normally process life and a call into contemplative an apophatic life. Because to judge something is to put a label on it, is to put it in some sort of hierarchy against a standard and say, okay, this passes, this doesn't, this is on the line, this is not. And as soon as we judge a moment, as soon as we judge anything, we've already constrained it. We've already stepped away from it. And so just to drop the judgment and allow ourselves to be is again what this apophatic way is all about. And so, yes, it is strange for us to think this way. But it's probably, and it's probably the hardest thing that we can do as modern Western people. We are so tied to this, so identified with how do we let go? How do we do this? It's terrifying for us to let go. Because if we let go of everything we think we are, then who the heck are we? What's left? 
You know, you keep peeling bodies away on the dog pile. When you get down to the bottom, what is left? So our job, my job right now, and our job kind of collectively, you know, the pastors here, the teachers here at The Effect, is to first try to teach the value in this contemplative way. Try to show you why it's important, this apophatic way. Because then the next step is maybe we then can stoke the desire for you to actually put forth the effort that it's obviously going to take to start to practice letting go of all that stuff in our heads and moving into a completely different way of life that's going to feel so foreign at first. So that's it. Teach the value, stoke the desire, and then obviously show the way. How do we actually do this? But before we get to any of the techniques or any of the actual things that you do, we need to make sure that we understand how important this is. And when it's so jarring to think of a negative way, this is what we're going to try to take a look at this morning. Last week we talked about Moses. We talked about shepherd consciousness. Do you remember shepherd consciousness? So here's Moses, and his life is traditionally divided into three sets of 40 years. The first 40 as the prince of Egypt, the second 40 as a shepherd in Midian, and the third 40 as a prophet of his people, leading them into the promised land. And we talked about how the number 40 is a symbolic number. When it's used this way, it's not meant to be taken literally, even though Moses is said to have been 120 years old. The number 40 signifies an initiation, a trial, a time of testing, that leads into a rebirth. And if you take a look at each one of the sections of Moses' life, it was a time of trial and testing into a rebirth, into a new life, and then into a new life, and then into a new life. And so here's Moses moving through this. You know, He's trying to understand what is going on in his life. He didn't ask to be kicked from a prince into a shepherd. It happened as he started to understand his identity as a Hebrew and killed the, the Egyptian guard. And then he was kicked into this next place. But nevertheless, here he was, moving from a position of authority down into a life of a fugitive in a desert, <laughs> trying, to, trying to understand what in the heck is going on. You know, The burning bush and all these things happen only after he spends about 40 years as a shepherd. You know, I always thought if God would show me a burning bush, heck, I could have the faith of Moses. I just need to see that burning bush, right? It was like they had an unfair advantage back then. You know, Moses got burning bushes. They got angels that were sent to them. They heard voices from the sky. The first disciples in the New Testament actually got to sit at Jesus' feet physically and listen to him teach. Man, if I had all that stuff, I'd be there too. I could do what they did. I always remember thinking about that. But you know what? The more I go, the longer I study, the more I live, I realize I'm looking at Scripture backwards. It wasn't that God gave Moses a burning bush in order to bolster his faith or even to give him instructions. You ever thought why God had to wait 40 years before he showed Moses the burning bush? Why didn't he do it right away? Why wait 40 years and let the people suffer in slavery for all that time? God had to wait 40 years until Moses became the kind of person who would notice the burning bush. We talked about this last week. Burning bushes, bushes that spontaneously combust, there's creosote bushes and different type of bushes, is a natural sight in the desert to this day. Scientists think they know what the burning bush was all about because they have found bushes that actually combust because of temperature and conditions and all this stuff, but they're missing the point. 
Even though Moses had walked through the desert for 40 years and had no doubt seen bushes burning, he became the man who was patient enough, who was taking time enough, who was present enough to notice that though the bush was burning, it was not being consumed. That's not so obvious. You see, that's the thing about God. God is subtle. He doesn't hit us over the head. He waits for us to become the kind of people who can notice him, who can hear the message that he's putting out. Look at scripture backwards. I've been doing this for years. We think God decides whether or not to communicate with us based on some sort of merit. Now, either we've hit a standard and now he's going to speak to us or we've done this and now he's going to speak to us. The truth is, God already made his decision to speak to us. Before he put together the foundations of the world, he already understood that he was going to speak to us and speak to us constantly. He already is, he already has been, and he always will be speaking to us. And you think about sitting in this room right now. This room is completely filled. We are swimming in radio frequencies, electromagnetic frequencies. They're filling this room. We're breathing them, if you, if you will. Don't hear a thing, right? Unless the voices are speaking to you right now. But there's radio, there's TV, there's phone signals. Maybe somebody's phone is going to go off here in a second. That happens every once in a while. But there's texting frequencies. There's Facebook messages going forth. All of that activity is taking place constantly in this room. And every moment of our lives that we're in an urban center and got cell phone coverage, yet we don't hear it unless we can tune in. It's the same thing with God. There's never a moment that God isn't speaking to us. There's never a moment that his signal isn't present, that the bush isn't burning. It's up to us to become the kind of people that move into an awareness and close the circuit and then connect. How does this happen? How do we become a people like that? You think about the transition that Moses made from being a prince of Egypt to being a shepherd of Midian. And if you look at a map and see where Midian is, scholars aren't exactly sure. Sometimes it's on the far side of the Gulf of Aqaba in actually Saudi Arabia. Sometimes it's on the Sinai Peninsula. But wherever you put it, it's at the back of beyond. It's on the other side of the mountains. It's away from anything that is cosmopolitan, anything that is urban. It would be kind of like moving from New York City to... Bisbee, Arizona. You all know Bisbee? I had to look it up. (laughs) It's about 100 miles southwest or southeast of Tucson, almost on the Mexican border. Got a population of about 5,000. Desert all around. Imagine moving from New York City, living there for 40 years, and then taking up residence in Bisbee. You'd be going out of your mind, wouldn't you? Now here is Moses. Moses is the second in command to the Pharaoh. He's used to power. He's used to servants. He's used to the best of the best, living in the finest houses, getting the finest food, everyone at his beck and call. When he says something, people jump and they do what he says to do. He's constantly being deluged with details and things that need to happen, signing documents. Starting to sound a little bit like our lives here. Gosh. Moses was living the South Orange County life. 
And then all of a sudden, in a blink, it's gone, and he's got only what he can carry on his horse or his camel or whatever it is he's on, and he's out in the desert, and he's a fugitive, and he knows if anybody finds him, he's a dead man. And he just drives further and further out into the wilderness to get as far away as he can from anything that is Egyptian. And we don't know how long he does that before he finally comes to the well at Midian, you know, and Jethro's daughters are there, and then the whole thing starts where he gets adopted into their family. And then he spends 40 years married to Zipporah, submitted to Jethro, and living for his sheep, and driving the sheep into the wilderness days, weeks at a time, alone with the sheep, finding pasture, taking care of the strays, moving them through, and building this shepherd consciousness which at once is completely silent and completely solitude, but at the same time completely present because you're there to serve the sheep. You've got to watch the sheep. This is your livelihood, and each animal is precious, and so you have to be so grounded in the here and now. And that combination of silence and solitude and keen awareness rooted in actual action not just navel-gazing kind of solitude and silence, but rooted in action, connected to your environment, connected to your dependents, the ones that you serve, is this perfect combination, this perfect lab, petri dish thing that breeds the kind of man that when he sees the burning bush, he notices what is going on there and runs to go see it and then stops short and realizes this is holy ground and takes off his shoes and then actually listens and, of course, starts to debate with the voice that he hears there. But that's part of the beauty of it, too. To be the kind of person who can see all that, be aware of that, and yet still be afraid and still have your own opinions and still try to fight for them, this is the human condition. To be fully human, to move into that, This is what Moses experienced. You know? How many of you have gone through the same sort of thing? And how much did you resist it? Two years ago on our 20th anniversary, Marion and I went to Hawaii. We went to the Big Island of Hawaii. You know, not much to do on the Big Island of Hawaii. It's not like Oahu. You know? And we're on the Kona Coast staying in a friend's house. It was really quiet at night. And there wasn't a lot to do. And Marion will tell you, for the first three or four days, I was sort of crawling out of my skin. I was kind of detoxing because that pace, that amount of detail that was constantly running through my mind suddenly was gone and I didn't know what to do. Now, after three or four days, it started to get fun. (laughs) I started to like having nothing to do. That was great. But it was really tough. Some of you have gone into retirement. What's it like to go into retirement? You've had a career all your life that was busy and purposeful, gave you... Kudos gave you recognition, gave you pay, gave you whatever it gave you, and you can identify with the work that you did. And suddenly, you're looking forward to retirement all that time, and then suddenly it hits, and it's like, what the heck happened? Now what do I do with myself? You know, Going on a vacation, going into retirement. Imagine what the President of the United States goes through after four or eight years in office, and suddenly they're a civilian again. I mean, what kind of transition would that be like? You know, there are all kinds of things in life that take us through. Have you ever done a large project? Maybe it was a fundraiser. Maybe it was a play, whatever. And you're used to this level of activity and all the rehearsals and all the meetings and everything. And then suddenly the event ends and boom, anticlimax. 
what do I do with all this time I've got now? What the heck? You know, this is the experience of moving from the cataphatic to the apophatic, moving from the way that we normally do religion and prayer into the contemplative way. It feels wrong. It feels like we don't know who we are anymore. And it feels like we just don't know what to do with ourselves. Those of you who have tried meditation or centering prayer, you sit there in silence or you try to sit there in silence and it just feels like everything is coming out of your skin again. And all the thoughts are just ping-ponging and bouncing around in there. Moses had to take the time to let go of Egypt. He had to get Egypt out through his pores Everything about his life, being the prince, being all of that stuff, he had to let go long enough to finally be able to just be present to what was in front of him right now, to begin to accept it, and then eventually to fall in love with it, to fall in love with his wife and his son and his extended family now, and the sheep and the landscape, the land and everything. He needed time to be able to do that. He had to completely lose his old identity in Egypt in order to become the man who saw the burning bush and the presence within the flames. See, this was the apophatic way imposed on Moses. He didn't choose it. It was imposed on him. But he accepted it. His faith, the way, reason he is a hero of our faith, is that he stuck with it. He moved through it. He didn't give up. And on the other side of that was everything that he needed to be a leader of his people, everything he needed to be a prophet to his people. Now Jesus, on the other hand, consciously and actually accepts and goes for this apophatic way, although we never really hear it taught that way. We never think of Jesus as being a contemplative or being apophatic. We see him as a man of action and doing so many things, But it's the balance there, you see. That's the important thing. It's knowing what is cataphatic, what is apophatic, what is action, what is being, and putting those all together. And Jesus was completely balanced. And he's showing us what that looks like in human form. Now, he did his 40 days in the wilderness. And again, 40 being this symbolic number, I'm sure it was much longer than that. Where he went through the same process that we just described with Moses. From the noisy village, working as a carpenter in his father's shop, to what? There is no description of where he went or what he actually did except for just the three temptations that again are showing us of the purging of all of that stuff so that he, when he got back out to the other side and started his public ministry, could simply say, I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. In public life, Jesus never affirms his ego. Do you notice that? He never affirms himself. He never points to himself. He's always pointing to the Father. He's always showing that this flows through, but it's not him. He's trying to get people's focus off of himself. And it's weird because we think of Jesus the way we do, but take a look at some of these verses that I have selected for you. And let's see if we can start to see where Jesus is actually doing this, starting at John 14. Verse 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. In other words, not with temporary salves and temporary things that will make us feel better, but a deep and lasting peace. Do not let your heart be troubled. He's telling them this because he just told them that he's leaving, he's going away. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. 
You heard that I said to you, I go away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I go to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Father is greater than I. See, when we hear that, it sounds so strange because we're so Trinitarian in our thought. Since the Council of Nicaea in 325, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit, all equal, all of the same substance, all comprising the one God. And here's Jesus saying, the Father is greater than I. What is going on? Does that mean our theology is wrong? Maybe. I don't know. It doesn't really bother me that much anymore. But you can be completely Trinitarian and still understand what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is expressing his complete submission to Father. He's pointing to Father. His job is to get out of the way, to show people how to find their own connection deeply with the Spirit right here and right now. And if they fixate on him, he knows they're going to lose that. The Father is greater than I. Here is this connection that you need to see. And of course, because of words like that, the church has been fighting over Jesus' nature and the nature of the Godhead ever since. The Arian controversy of the 3rd and 4th centuries that practically tore the church apart was right on this point. The Arians said Jesus was a created being. He had a beginning. He had a beginning in the Father. So therefore, he was subservient to the Father. And of course, they lost the argument, got exiled, got executed, and whatever happened to them. But the point is, Even if Jesus is the same substance as Father, he still played the part of submission, of vulnerability, of dependence, and always pointed to the Father. Take a look at John 5, verse 19. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. Skipping to verse 30. I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. I testify about my, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. He understood that his testimony, ungrounded in Father's presence, was not valid. Everything he's saying here is pointing away, pointing to Father. This is the apophatic way. This is clearing all of that out. Not getting fixated on ego that needs to be fed, ego that needs to be aggrandized, Ego that needs to be praised. Just letting it go. The Father, the Father, everything about that. When you read through the scripture, you'll see dozens of times, Jesus never says, I heal you. Jesus never says, I forgive you. Again, pointing toward himself. Take a look at Mark 5, verse 34. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. Luke seventeen nineteen. Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. Mark 10.52, go, your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and then started to follow Jesus. Forgiveness, Luke 7.48, then he said to her, your sins have been forgiven. Passive voice. Not I forgive you. He's recognizing that they already are. He's recognizing their state of being healed and being forgiven. And in that culture, it's really the same thing. To have your debts paid, to be healed, 
you know, to be forgiven. It's all the idea of being liberated, having things brought back into equilibrium again. Mark 2, 5, And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Sons, your sins are forgiven. Jesus always pointing toward Father, never trying to get things localized in himself, clearing that space. Think about the Beatitudes right at the beginning of Mark 5. Mark 5. Matthew 5. What are the first four? Do you remember them? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the meek or gentle. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. This is something that we just sort of pass over and we don't really think about. Because each one of those attributes, each one of those attitudes for us is a negative. Poor in spirit. What does that mean? Most people think it means lacking in spiritual gifts. Not being a very deeply spiritual person. Not necessarily even being a good person. Look, muddies the waters even further and just as blessed are the poor. Does that mean it's the people without money? who are the ones who are blessed. And blessed, to obey, means whole, healed, complete, fulfilled. Congratulations to you. You're fortunate when. You're happy when. What? You're poor in spirit? See, now really what that means, it's an idiomatic expression. That means humility. It's having an uh, attitude of poverty, even if you're rich. But humility isn't something we really prize as a culture, as a people. Mourning, that's a negative. You're blessed when you mourn. Yes, without the mourning, that means you didn't have something to mourn, which means you didn't have a connection. We mourn the things that we really love, the things that we really felt connected to. It's the connection. It's the acceptance of the pain that inevitably comes when we fall in love, when we put our heart out there. Blessed are you when you mourn because you really were connected. And in the moment of mourning is the moment of your comfort as well. Blessed are the meek. Again, those who are not domineering, those who see everybody as equal, connected, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, those who have this desire we're talking about. I hope that you will learn to hunger and thirst after contemplation, after this negative way, because that will be the, the emphasis, the, the motivation that you'll need to actually do the work that it's going to take to move into that. The first step of AA mirrors this. To admit our powerlessness is the same thing. It is the negation. It's taking away of our sense of control, our identification with all the techniques of our control, including the substance that we're using, or whatever it happens to be. But here it is, over and over again. All of these are description, descriptions of the apophatic way. And then at Luke 9, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself. There's the actual word. Deny himself and take up his cross daily. Allow yourself to die again to all of the identifications that we have and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. All these negative paradoxes that just sound like crazy language that we kind of let go through one ear and out the other, but when you put it in this context, you're starting to understand what Jesus is talking about here. It's all coming together. Then he takes it and applies it to leadership. Applies it to those who are leading others. Matthew 20, 20. The mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. Now the sons of Zebedee were two of the twelve disciples, okay? And Jesus says to her, what do you wish? And she says to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. She's asking for a position of power. 
She's asking for the right and left hand. She's still misunderstanding. They're all misunderstanding what kingdom is all about. They're still looking at it as a political, you know, secular kingdom that will throw out the Romans. And Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, my cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, that's not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers, but Jesus called them to himself and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great men exercise authority over them? It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So here is apophatic leadership, contemplative leadership, servant leadership, as it's often called. Leadership that does not seek praise, doesn't seek recognition, doesn't seek aggrandizement, doesn't seek elevation of status. You know the word that Jesus used for the Spirit? Paraclete, as it's anglicized, parakletos in, uh, in Greek. It literally means one who comes alongside. That's all it means. Jesus says the comforter will come to you. Comforter is a translation of parakletos. Unseen unheralded. The spirit is a gentleman, gentlewoman, doesn't impose himself on us, just comes alongside, guides quietly and silently and moves on. This is exactly Jesus' message about the way that he leads. And it's echoed here in this quote by Lao Tzu from a Taoist tradition in China, probably three or four centuries before Jesus. But listen to this, how it's, it's described in this perfect way that just flows with what Jesus is trying to get across to us. To lead people, walk beside them. As for the best leaders, the people do not notice their existence. The next best, the people honor and praise. The next, the people fear. And the next, the people hate. When the best leader's work is done, the people say, we did it ourselves. Invisible leaders, egoless leaders who don't need to be praised, who don't need that elevation. They just give because it's their pleasure to give. That's what Jesus is talking about. This is that apophatic way. Now, in emphasizing this apophatic way, emphasizing this negative way, again, I don't want to imply that it's exclusive. It needs to be balanced. Positive, negative. Content, Thinking about God, praying actual words. Marian prayed for healing. That's cataphatic prayer. It's beautiful. It galvanizes all us. It sends our focused intentions to God. That's great. But if we don't balance it with the apophatic, with clearing that space, then we're going to get more and more identified with images and forms and symbols that will constrain and limit God's presence. We will be people who will walk right past burning bushes on the way to what we think is our outcome and is our goal. Not only that, we have to have a sense of ego, we have to have a sense of self, or we can't get through life. 
We have to have a sense of ego if we're going to let the ego go. A sense of self if we're going to let the self go. And furthermore, if our ego, our sense of self is so damaged, is so twisted by the traumas that we faced in our life, then that has to be healed by cataphatic processes that are going to help and heal that so that then we can move and progress in a spiritual way. And this is what religion is geared to do. And when it does it really well, it does both. But religion and psychology and life coaches and self-help you know, um, authors and all that, what they're geared to do is to build up a healthy ego, a healthy self-image, a healthy self. That's what they're there for, and that's absolutely essential. But the problem is, we stop there. We get mired there. And we don't go any further because our culture no longer values clearing a space and stepping aside and those attributes that Jesus so beautifully expressed in the Beatitudes. Those have gotten lost to us. You know? And so religion rarely takes the next step of letting go, rarely takes us into the shepherd consciousness. But then again, the shepherd consciousness is not just an end in itself. Let's take a look at this quote, or just don't take a look because it's not printed anywhere for you. I'll read it. This comes from Jack Jezreel, who is the founder of an organization called Just Faith. He writes, Much of what passes for spirituality and spiritual practice, prayer days, meditation, retreats, spiritual direction, contemplation, ritual, and study, is primarily informed by an exclusive attention to the self and perhaps family relationships, suggesting that much of what we call spirituality is actually some mixture of psychology and private devotion made sacred by the use of religious imagery. Now, you may have caught that he, he included contemplation in that list, right? But if contemplation is being used to try to gather some sort of spiritual experience, then we're already visualizing the outcome. Putting, and so it's contemplative done right and we often do it the other way because we're so geared to that. My argument is not that all of that is worthless, all of that cataphatic sort of prayer, but that it's woefully incomplete. I am concerned that it provides a very limited experience of what Jesus is so passionate about, namely the reign of God, the most repeated phrase in the four Gospels. Now he says the reign of God is the most repeated phrase. Have you ever heard the reign of God before? Probably not because that's a translation of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Kingdom, the word there, Malkutha in Aramaic or Basileia in Greek, does not mean a territory or a place. It's literally the principles by which the king reigns. And so the best English word that we have to translate is reign, R-E-I-G-N. The reign, the principles by which the, the atmosphere that is created under the king's rulership, that sort of idea So the reign of God is just the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. As I understand the reign of God, it includes the grace-driven, love-driven transformation of the self and the world. What's more, it recognizes that the transformation of the self and the world are directly connected to each other. So religion and psychology and coaching are all needed for self-development that's healthy. And there's a place for this, and it's vitally important. Think about Joel Olstein's ministry for a second. You all familiar with him? Have you watched him at all? You know, that's what he's focused on, making people the best that they can be. 
Now, I haven't watched him extensively. I don't know if he goes into contemplative areas. But what I have seen is he's very focused on building people up, getting them to let go of all the damage, limiting thoughts, traumas, behavioral patterns, compulsions, and getting out where they need to be. Absolutely critical to be able to do that. And he's got a beautiful ministry that is huge because he's encouraging people in that way. But if we stop there, we're missing. That's the platform for us to now jump off. You know, it's like the diving board to jump off into the pool. We need that. But we need this other piece too. We need to get there. And our culture rarely takes that next step. Our religions as part of our culture rarely take that next step, letting go completely, getting out of the way of ourself. We need the balance, but we need to be able to realize that all of that self, all of that ego, is not really us. It's a tool that we use as human beings, but it's not who we are. And we'll never know that until we actually spend time stepped away. The apophatic the shepherd consciousness. Never an end in itself, though. Remember, the shepherd consciousness exists to serve the sheep. Makes us present for what? For action, for connection, the reason why we're here, our deepest purpose. Jezreel continues, Isn't it instructive that the spiritual formation of the original disciples happens with Jesus on the road? In effect, the disciples learn by doing. They grow into an understanding of this God of love, this God of compassion, this God who loves justice, this God who makes all things new by participating as active observers and agents of compassion, justice, and newness. And yes, necessarily, they pause with Jesus to reflect, ask questions, sometimes stupid questions, and pray. But the spiritual adventure described in the four Gospels does not happen in the sanctuary. It happens on the road, in the company of beggars and prostitutes and lepers. There's that balance. The balance between being and doing, between action and repose, between intellect and experience. Martha and Mary, if you know that story, it's the balance between those two. And the purpose of contemplation is to bring us into full connection, into full relationship, ready to help as needed at any moment, ready to leave people better than we found them at any moment. A little story from the Desert Fathers. We've been reading through these in some of our groups. A brother asks one of the elders, saying, There are two brothers of whom one remains praying in his cell, fasting six days at a time and doing a great deal of penance. The other one takes care of the sick. Which one's work is more pleasing to God? The elder replied, If that brother who fasts six days at a time were to hang himself up by the nose, he could not equal the one who takes care of the sick. It's not that fasting and praying is something that is not beautiful. But if it doesn't lead to action, if it doesn't take us into the shepherd consciousness, then it's missing its purpose. It's not going where it needs to go. So here we need the balance between these two all of these things that Jesus is talking about. As a culture, I said, we don't value, we don't celebrate the apophatic, the letting go. We don't like the word submission or submitted. You know, especially women, they've been bludgeoned with that for so many generations. I watch them bristle when the word submission comes up. But it's a beautiful word. If we understand it correctly, if we understand that in submission we actually get our liberation not the restriction, 
We think of it as a restriction. We think of the law as a restriction because only, only because we're looking at it from the outside in. When we stop and we detach from this ego, this false self, and we realize that's not who we are, then submission becomes a release. Submission, vulnerability, dependency, all of that becomes a release because when we're submitted to the God of love, there is no risk. There is no restriction. How could there possibly be? This is where we're trying to go with this. Who do we value? CEOs of big companies with private jets and helicopters, movie stars, politicians, especially now with the whole presidential race you know, ramping up. Everybody's looking at these people and lionizing them. You know, how about sports heroes? How about Batman? We love Batman. You know, and all our Marvel, you know, that strong, solitary figure who can't have any real relationships because they have this purpose, you know, and nobody can beat them and they just keep on going like the Energizer Bunny, you know. But to try to actually live that life, can you imagine how exhausting, how lonely, how purposeless that would actually be if all you had was your cause? as noble as that might be, if it's not informed from a quiet place inside that connects us to the reason that it's an important cause, then it's just activity. And it's not the activity that matters. It's the connection that gives the activity meaning. I'm going to close with a couple of paragraphs here from Richard Rohr. He says, Deep consciousness, and we can say the shepherd consciousness, knows the value, the true value of a thing. It knows intuitively what is real and what's unreal, what's eternal and what is passing, what matters and what doesn't matter at all. This kind of consciousness allows us to see the archetypal truth within the particular, the big truth within the detail. For example, the pattern of Christ's death and resurrection within each death and birth. At a loved one's deathbed, we can be present to their dying our dying, all dying, and to the reality of life's changing forms in each death. If we can stay within this kind of consciousness, I can promise we'll receive compassion and empathy for the entire world. In the big consciousness, we know things by participation with them, which is love. Love is participation. Participation is love. As I've said before, we we cannot know God in a cerebral way but only by loving God through a different kind of knowing. Mature spirituality teaches us how to enter into the reality of that which we are encountering. And it gets even better than that. Eventually, you get the courage to say, I am a little part of that which I am seeking. In this moment, the idea of God as transcendent shifts to the realization that God is imminent, about to happen. And the word he doesn't use here, I think is great, is immanent. Heard that word before? That means existing or operating within. Jesus says kingdom is within. It's immanent. It operates and exists within us. It's also imminent. It's always about to happen. It's always happening. So we can make this change. The idea of God is transcendent, shifting to the realization that God is imminent and imminent. That's why the mystics can shout with total conviction and excitement, my deepest me is God. That sounds weird, 
let him explain a little bit. My deepest me is God. God is no longer just out there, but equally in here. Until that transference takes place and you know that it is God in me loving God, God in me worshiping God, resting in God, enjoying God, the whole point of the incarnation has not yet been achieved. And we remain in religion instead of actual faith experience or faith encounter. Now, if I'm doing my job this morning, I'm hoping that maybe you have a little bit more desire, maybe just curiosity about what the heck I'm talking about. And maybe that curiosity will spark you to take the next steps to find out what another approach could look like in, look like in your life. We're all pretty good at the cataphatic way. It's been ingrained to, into us since birth. We know that one. But if you don't know the apophatic way, the contemplative way, the shepherd consciousness, then it's time to do some experimenting on that side of the ledger and see what it's like to start to get some balance. To understand what it means to descend in order to ascend. To let go in order to connect. Until we can really hold on to those kind of paradoxes in one embrace and celebrate it and live it and accept it, life is always going to be very difficult for us. And I hope that you have a little bit more now to want to take the next step and to find out this way. And we'll keep talking about it and see where it leads us all. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being imminent and imminent in our lives, always about to happen and always happening within and among and in the midst of. If you're that kind of God, if we're reading this right, if Jesus is showing us the Father, you, in this way, then we want to enter in. We want to do the things that Jesus said that we can do in you, in connection with you. Help us, Lord. Help us to move past any prejudices or biases or fears that we've got against even trying something like this and see what it can do, the changes it could make. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for never letting go of the thoughts of us, your love for us, your care for us. Thank you for being our full shepherd always gathering the strays, always bringing the herd across the stream into good pasture, into the enclosure to be safe for the night. Help us to emulate that in any way that we can. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.